Good morning, everybody. Oh, man, today is a beautiful, wonderful day. Can I take a moment just to welcome um, our Itawaners? <laughs> can, can you show hands? Wait, since when do you guys raise your hand like this? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> so um, as we announced last week, um, we've um, one of our campuses based in Ito and has been there for eight years. And just last week, um, we closed down this campus. Um, and although it was very bittersweet, uh, we do believe that it is something that God is leading us into. And so if you see any people from Ito in here today, make sure you welcome them. They are family. They're crazy <laughs> and they're awesome. <laughs> so it's so good to have you guys here. Uh, my name is Susie. I'm one of the pastors here at New Philly. And if you're new to our community here today, welcome. We hope that you feel God's presence here and that, that this becomes your home. So many of us are not actually from Korea. I don't know if you guys know, but I'm, I'm although I kind of sound American, I'm not even American. I'm South American. Um, and so like really, really far removed, um, like exactly on the opposite side of the globe. And I remember when I first moved to Korea, I was thirsty and hungry to find community here. Um, and I could go through different channels, but I remember when I walked into New Philly, that sense of like, I don't know these people, but I want to know them. And they feel like they could be family. And I remember that feeling that when I walked into a new Philly sanctuary, this was way back in like 2008. Um, but if this is you today and you feel like, man, I don't really know if um, I can find community here in Korea, but I'm looking around. They look pretty decent. These people look kind of civil and maybe we can become family. <laughs> and uh, we're hoping that this becomes a place where you feel like this could be your home. And, um, you know, we love it when we have even people visiting for summer as well. Summer is a great time to kind of visit Korea. And many of you here might just be visiting here for a few weeks only. We encourage you, the time that you do get to spend here, like make this your home. Even if it's for two weeks, even if it's for three weeks. Make sure that, you know, this becomes a place of family for you as well. So with that said, um, we're going to get into the word today. For the last couple of weeks, we've been going through the, the book of Colossians. And just to give us a little bit of background again on the book of Colossians, it is an epistle. It is a letter written by Apostle Paul to, um, to a church that wasn't like your super mega church, church, like talk of the town kind of church. It was actually a very average church in a very average city. And in the midst of everything that they were going through, um, Apostle Paul had some very important things to remind them of as a faith community. And one of them in the context against the backdrop of so many different heresies that were kind of attacking uh, the, the purity of their faith at that time, he felt it so important to remind them of the power of the gospel and the gospel alone. Isn't it, isn't it true how, like, sometimes when we first get saved, it's like you feel the sweetness of the good news. Like, it is so clear to you, you are not deserving, you are lost, you are blind, you are deaf, and God in his mercy, we still don't know why, what in the world made him do that, but he chose to save you. There was nothing compelling about it. There wasn't any gain to be had. It wasn't like he looked at someone and was like, you know what? They would make a great Christian someday. Maybe I'll 
pick them. Like, that's not what God saw. He, in his mercy, whether he saw potential or no potential, he, in his mercy and sovereignty, chose you and saved you with nothing nothing that we had done. And so we went through Colossians 1 and Colossians 2 in the last two weeks. And today we're going to go through Colossians 3. Now, just to backtrack, the first message was called the hope of the gospel. The second message was the freedom of the gospel. And today we're going to be talking about the fruit of the gospel. There is fruit. There's fruit in the gospel. So if we were to visually think about it this way, um, if I could get this to work. That'd be great. There you go. So this is visually, this is a super not scientific anatomy of a tree. And you see what's happening out in the open is usually what we see, but deep underneath the soil, there is a story being told. There is so much going on underneath the surface and we see a web of roots anchoring a tree in place, sucking up all the nutrients and allowing for growth to happen out in the open. Do you guys remember what the main? Yes, taproot. Yes. So you see that, that, that gangster, like central root that is like the stake kind of in the middle. Uh, that is the, uh, whatchamacallit, the, the taproot. And what this does, it kind of like digs into the soil and then from there all these other small roots can form and we were saying like what an amazing illustration that is of how we anchor ourselves in the gospel and then everything else just takes root and kind of branches out from that so this week we're not just talking about you know the roots the root system today we're talking about about Ta-da! <laughs> that is also not very <laughs> scientific. We're talking about the fruit. If the roots are doing well, if the growth is happening, then there will be fruit. And it's going to be visible, tangible, and even edible at times. And so we're going to be talking about the fruit of the gospel. Um, is the clicker working? Or will we have to manually work through it? Not working. Okay, can you... Sorry. All right, we'll just manually work through it. We'll see if this responds once in a while. All right, so we're going to be going through verse by verse through Colossians uh, chapter 3, where we left off last time. And we're going to be talking about the fruit of the gospel. And this is what we're going to be reading from the NIV, by the way. If you guys have an ESV in your hands, it is a great, it is a great translation. The ESV is a great translation. It's very, like, on par with with the, the original language. But then there are times where you're reading it and it's been like a a five verse, 10 verse run on sentence. And you have no idea what Apostle Paul is saying anymore. And it's because it's taken literally. Um, And so we're working through the NIV 84, which is a little bit more kind of like clause by clause, idea by idea. So we're working through Colossians 3. And it says, since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. And the important word in this entire, you know, the entire two verses is the word since. It's because what happens before This verse is Colossians 2, right? And we were talking about because you are rooted and grounded in the gospel of Christ, since then you've been raised with Christ, then the outcome is you'll set your hearts 
on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And the verse says, set your minds. It's actually, if, if you look at the original language, it's a little bit more like keep on thinking about. It's not just like you set your mind once and then you're done, but it's like you keep on thinking about. You keep on setting your minds on things above and not on earthly things. The next verse is for because, because you died in your life, is now hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory because you died. Your life is hidden, is concealed. It is locked together with Christ. And that means when Christ died, you died. When Christ was raised again, you were raised again as well. It's like a two-for-one deal. It's a one-plus-one here in Korea, right? It's like you and Christ, you are inseparable now. You guys are woven in together. And when Christ dies, you die as well. Your sin, your shame, the wages of your sin, all of that dies with Christ on the cross. But when he is raised up on the third day, you are also raised up on the third day. Now let's move on to verse five and six. Put to death. In other words, kill. It means kill. Treat as dead, mortify. Put to death. Therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry, because of these, the wrath of God is coming. In the message version, this is how it reads. It says, and that means killing off everything connected with that way of death, sexual promiscuity, impurity, lust, doing whatever you feel like, whenever you feel like it, and grabbing whatever attracts your fancy. That's a life shaped by things and feelings instead of by God. Doesn't that read really nicely? Like we are no longer slaves to our flesh. We're no longer slaves to our old man. Now we are a new man made in Christ, resurrected in Christ. Now let's move on to verses 7 to 8. You used to, you used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Let's pause for a second. If you guys were tracking for the last two sermons, we're talking about, hey, it's not about the exterior. It's not about the behavior. Your problem is actually much worse, much deeper than your actual behavior. You cannot fix this thing with just behavior modification. We're talking about like your, your deal is not just that you do the wrong things. It's that your heart, your inner life, who you are in your essence, that is what is broken. That is what is dead. And there's no way to fix this thing unless we address what's on the inside. And so you're thinking like, wait, didn't you just say like last week or two weeks ago that all this stuff doesn't matter, right? Right? You're kind of like thinking that this should introduce some kind of tension. So you're thinking like, wait, so you are telling me that what you do actually does matter in the end. And that is what Apostle Paul is saying. But we get it. We get to understand in the right context, right? Let's move on to the next verse. Do not lie to each other. Since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. So if, 
if we were to think about what is happening in us when we decide to accept Jesus Christ into our life, and now he is the Lord and Savior over my life, Apostle Paul is giving us a, a mental picture of someone putting on different clothes. So imagine with me, I don't, who, who here is a morning shower person? Morning shower person? Who here is a night shower person? I don't understand y'all, but okay. Um, so, <laughs> it makes sense, but anyway, if you're a morning shower person, can you imagine like you spent all night, right, sleeping and, and you had a really rough night and you woke up and you don't feel clean. You don't feel clean in the morning, right? Like you were, it was either sweaty and you didn't have AC or, or whatever. Like you start out your day feeling like, like not clean, not fresh, not crisp. And so you take a shower and after that you feel like, okay, now I'm ready to take on the day. Can you imagine like feeling that feeling and then choosing your outfit for the day and bypassing all these like clean things and you choose to take something out from your dirty laundry basket and you're like, this looks great not that bad. Okay. I'm going to put it on. Can you imagine like that makes absolutely no sense. Why go through all the trouble of even like showering, right? If you're going to go ahead and put on something dirty, can you imagine if it wasn't just dirty, if it was like you found like, like a mop bucket or something and you like, you take something out like sopping wet and dripping and you decide to put that on right after you were taking a shower. It makes absolutely no sense. Right. And you probably have no friends if you do that, right? You, you shouldn't that just makes absolutely no sense. Even just like rationally, logically speaking, that makes no sense because you're just made clean. You're just made clean. Why do you choose to put something on that is dirty when you've been made clean in the same way? This is what apostle Paul is saying. Like the blood of Jesus Christ has purified you. You've been cleansed by his work and his work alone. Why are you choosing to put on something that has been sitting in the mop bucket like for 20 years, for example, like, why are you choosing to put that on? What makes sense now is to put on something that has been just washed, freshly pressed right out of your closet. That's the only thing that makes sense now. And that is what he's referring to as our works, our behavior, putting on behavior that is unfitting to someone who has been made new. He's saying, you're acting like your old person, like you're still dead. Like that makes no sense to me. He's saying that not only are you supposed to put on new clothes, this is like a new person in Christ, but this person in Christ is actually being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. So imagine, I I don't think we can really picture this. There's no such technology. But if you were to put on something that is like crisp and clean that morning, and I don't know how, but this garment, this shirt, let's say, it makes itself clean every day. Like you never have to take it off. Like it is perpetually clean. It is never going to get dirty. It's kind of like it's being renewed. It's getting better and better with every day. That is the person that you put on when you are saved. You are being renewed in knowledge and the image of its creator. You're being more and more sanctified, more and more looking like Christ with every day. And that is the garment that you choose to put on. And now next verse 11, it says here, there's no Greek. Or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Another word of saying this, and this is how an author put it class distinctions vanish in Christ. 
Christ has obliterated the words barbarian, master, slave, all of them, and has submitted instead the word Adelpho, brother. That means that when we're in the gathering of God's people, you don't look at the person right next to you and say, well, they're, they're this demographic or this age group or this race or all these things are obliterated, obliterated by the fact that now the person right next to you is called a brother in Christ. That is their identity now. So could you look at your neighbor and just say, well, make it gender appropriate, right? You're my brother. You're my sister. Can you say that to your neighbor? So now, so now you have brothers and you have sisters. It doesn't matter where they came from. It doesn't matter how long they've been in Korea for. It doesn't matter what language is their first language. It doesn't matter. All those things don't matter. What matters now is that they are your fellow brother or sister in Christ. That is the power of the blood of Jesus Christ. It makes everything else secondary. And can you imagine the power of these words when you were sitting in a congregation that actually back then, right, in, in the, the church of Colossae, like there were actual slaves and actual masters sitting in the same room. Like you were holding hands and praying for and doing life together with someone who actually might be your master or somebody who might be your subservient, like your slave. Can you imagine the midst of that? And other distinctions that they had. They said like Jew or Greek. Another translation is Jew or Gentile, right? So people who were the chosen people, covenant of God, and people who were grafted in, there no longer is that discrepancy. There no longer is that distinction. Now, it doesn't matter where you came from, what kind of cultural background you had, what kind of family you had, no, no matter how rich you are, how poor you are, how much power you have and influence you have, or how little you have, you are now all the same in the blood of Christ. Man, this will preach in today's world, but we're not going to go there because, man, it's, yeah, yeah, we're not going to go there today. But, man, when you're thinking about racial tension, when you're thinking about discrimination, when you're thinking about um, maybe in more subtle ways, we use other labels to kind of, you know, if we have a pie, we cut it in different ways, right? We label and we make categories in different ways. It just depends on what categories you're using. When you think about someone who is well-educated or not well-educated, white-collar, blue-collar, um, not blue-collar, collar, <laughs> collar, not blue-colored, when you think about all these different distinctions, they are so secondary when it comes to the finished work that Christ has already done. And so with assurance and with confidence, we can look at either side, at our neighbors, and, and know that we are brothers and sisters. We are made the same in Christ. Now let's move on. Colossians 3, verse 12. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves. Again, this, this image of putting on a garment. Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Putting on, clothing yourself is actually an imperative. It's a command. So in other words, He's saying, you have been made holy, you are dearly loved, you have been chosen by God, now act accordingly. Now act like you're saved. Now act like you've been renewed. Now act like you don't see this label. Now act like all the things of the past are in the past. Now you are a new man. You are a new person. You're no longer dead. 
Stop acting like a dead person, as if a dead person could act, right? Stop acting in your old ways. You are no longer dead. You are made alive in Christ. And then it goes on to say, bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. And we move on to verse 15, and it says, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you are called to peace and be thankful. Doesn't this sound really good? Doesn't it sound like a really good garment to put on in the morning? Like letting the peace of Christ rule in your hearts and in your minds, no matter what you have ahead for that day, no matter what kind of deadlines you have, no matter what kind of family issues you have going on, no matter what kind of decisions you have to make in the next few days, you let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. That is, I want that garment. I want to put on that garment in the morning. And it says also, and be thankful. Again, in the original language, it's a little bit more like keep on becoming thankful. It's a continual verb. You keep on becoming thankful. It is a continuous obligation. You're not like your Thanksgiving for today doesn't assure the Thanksgiving for tomorrow. Tomorrow, you're going to have to be thankful once again. Tomorrow, you're going to have to put on the garment again. You're going to have to let the peace of Christ rule in your heart again. It is a continuous work continual work with Christ. Colossians 3.16, it says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. So the word of God, the gospel of Christ, doesn't just visit you at one point in your life. It dwells in you. It makes its home in you. It almost like nests in you. Like it's not like a one-time visitor that comes into your house. This is someone who's like moving into your house, like buying furniture, like rearranging stuff, like moving in to you. The word of Christ dwells in you richly, abundantly, fully filling up the entire space, richly as you teach and admonish one another. This is what a life lived in Christ looks like. Someone who puts on this garment that Christ has purchased on our behalf daily. And you let the word of Christ dwell, live in you richly as you do all these things. And lastly, verse 17, it says, and whatever you do, this is the summary. And whatever you do whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever you do, doesn't matter if you're even a, eating a bagel that day or, or saying hi to a neighbor or turning in an assignment. It doesn't matter what you're doing that day. Whatever you do, whether in word, something you say or something that you do, indeed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Do it all in the spirit of the Lord Jesus, whatever it is that you are doing. So Apostle Paul, 
isn't just talking about, hey, look, we gotta get your, you got to get your act together. We've got to get your theology together again. He's saying the gospel has done it all, and now you've been given freedom and power to live as someone who has been redeemed. So, and he's not saying, this is kind of like a little bit of a dichotomy between um, just Greco-Roman philosophy and thinking and Hebrew thinking. In the Greco-Roman world, they thought the body and and the spirit, the, the inner life, I guess, they're two separate things. There's no overlap. So they would say, like, the body is inherently evil, the flesh is inherently evil, and whatever is inside is actually what matters. Um, So it doesn't matter what you do, actually. You don't actually need to be moral as long as the inside is clean. But how, how Hebrews think about mind, spirit, soul, and body is like they are one and the same. They're together. There's no way to extricate. Like if you were to take away your spirit, your body would not be able to live. That's how the Bible says it. The body is not able to live without the spirit. And in the same way, faith without works is dead. The same way. This is what James says in chapter two. Faith without works is dead. It isn't a mind over matter thing where just what you're thinking and just your feelings and your intentions inside, that's all that matters. No, it's saying both body and spirit are both important. It is faith resulting in works. It is a gospel believed and it is a gospel lived out. It is both things go hand in hand. So let's look at, look at it in this way. Is this working now? No. All right. So this is the way that we think in life. We say, okay, we got to do things the right way. Like I I have to check all the boxes, do whatever a nice person does. And that is eventually going to get me. Sorry, I'm going to ask for, yes. That is eventually going to give me status. I'm going to be seen a different kind of way people would treat me a different kind of way depending on my achievements. And then that leads to identity. This is no longer just how people see me. This is who I am. My achievements lead to my status and my status leads to my identity, who I am at the core of my being. And that somehow magically is going to get, get us the acceptance that we are craving for the acceptance from God, from people, and even from ourselves. And that is the way that we think, right? We never think about like, no, we think about, let me fix what I'm doing. I'm doing something wrong. Let me get these things right. And then everything else will kind of fall into place. But this is what the gospel actually says. You start in the place, is that visible? Of acceptance. You start there. That is something that you could not gain on your own, no matter what kind of achievements you have on your resume. It had to start in a place of acceptance simply because of what God has done on your behalf. And that is the power of the gospel. You are fully accepted, redeemed. You're not half dead and half alive. You're fully alive. You cannot be half dead and half alive. You are fully alive, fully accepted because of Christ and his work on the cross. Then from there, you go to identity. You are now a new person. You are now a child of God. Do you understand how scandalous that statement was, especially in Old Testament times? 
Like even to call Yahweh, the, the God whose name you can pronounce out loud, to call him your father, and then to have the nerve to call yourself a child of God, a child of the Yahweh that, whose name you shouldn't even say out loud. Like that is blasphemous to someone who's living the Old Testament. That is scandalous. How dare you call yourself a child of God? How dare you? And this is simply because the acceptance that you needed to gain was gained on your behalf by Christ. And now you are made a child of God, someone who can boldly enter in the throne of grace. From there, it starts from who you are that how people view you can flow out. People will view you a certain way, but it is going to be determined by the identity that you have in Christ. And then finally, from that place and from that place alone, can you achieve anything? No matter how noble an act or a gesture, no matter how selfless, like it has to flow from that place of first being fully accepted by God. That changing the core and the essence of who you are. And from that place, people will see you differently. You will see yourself differently. And from there, you're able to accomplish anything. So you will accomplish things. You will do things. Your behavior, your your actions, what you do in this life, it does matter. But it has to be in the right order. It has to flow from acceptance and not for acceptance. Living for acceptance, whether it be for man or for God, it is exhausting. I don't know. Have you guys ever been in that place? You feel like you have to prove yourself to somebody. Can you imagine having to prove yourself to God that you're worthy of love? Like someone who's perfect and absolutely holy. Can you imagine living under that yoke your entire life? No matter how many times you do ritual washing and cleansing, no matter how many animals you sacrifice on the altar, no matter how many good deeds you do here in this life. It is exhausting. You will never be fully accepted by God. And that is why the gospel is such good news. You no longer have to live for acceptance. Now you can live from a place of acceptance, fully being embraced by the Father. So if we were to backtrack to the, uh, to the last couple of weeks, we talked about the hope of the gospel. And this is the hope of the gospel. The first thing was that Christ is supreme over everything. Do you remember that, that song that Apostle Paul kind of burst into in, in the middle of um, Colossians 1? It's almost like he couldn't contain himself. And he had to talk about Jesus, the one who's supreme over every power, every authority here on earth and also in heaven. So Christ is supreme over everything. Second, we are redeemed despite everything. And lastly, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing through everything. No matter what kind of delays you see, no matter what kind of like detours and plans that you never expected come your way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing through everything. And then last week we talked about the freedom of the gospel. The gospel, first of all, is God initiated. It wasn't your idea. It was his idea. He had like zero things to gain from it. And he decided in his mercy and in his sovereignty to initiate this. It is God sustained. The power of the gospel sustained throughout your entire life is sustained 
by God. He never takes away that acceptance. He never takes away that power that is sustained through your life and that is sustained by God. Third, it was that it is God exemplified. He himself lived that kind of life here on earth. Not living for acceptance, but from acceptance. Do you remember the words that kind of like ordained Jesus Christ into his public ministry? It was at his baptism, right? When he heard from God before doing any miracles, before attracting any crowds or preaching any sermons, God the Father said to Jesus Christ, you are my son in whom I'm well pleased. Before he ever did anything, he was already well pleased. And lastly, it is God glorifying. And this is because it is a gift and we have no leg to stand on to boast. How can we boast when it's been a gift? It is God's gift to you. You have nothing to like measure yourself up against somebody else when it's simply been God who has given this to you. And so in that way, it is God glorifying. It is not man glorifying. It is not ministry glorifying. It is simply God glorifying. And lastly, what we're talking about today, the fruit of the gospel. The first thing is that the gospel affects how you relate to others. And that is in love fueled service, love fueled service. The gospel doesn't say, hey, don't do anything here in this life. No, it says like, if you're going to do something, make sure the motivation, make sure the, the thrust, the, the engine that is driving all those things is love. Second, the gospel affects how you relate to yourself. It is love sustained identity. Love sustained identity. Who you are, that shower that you took in the morning. That is love, sustain identity. No matter what you go through, no matter what kind of season you go through, no matter what kind of sins you've committed, you are still being sustained in love in that identity in Christ. And lastly, the gospel affects how you relate to God. It is love-inspired worship. Like, can you imagine, this is very theoretical, imagine you're dating, right? Imagine you're dating, very theoretical, um, somewhere out there in an alternate universe. Um, you <laughs> imagine you're dating, right? And this person pursuing you is like doing all the right things. Like they are like serenading you. They're like buying you dinner and they're saying all the right things. Um, and you talk to them about it, like, man, you are such a great boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever. Uh, you are such, you know, you, you are... Like checking all, like you were the ideal person to date. And what if you heard this person say, well, that's what I'm supposed to do. That's what I was told to do. You'd be like, what? <laughs> Excuse me? You know, <laughs> like how, you're like, take it back, take it all back. Like, I don't want any of it. There's something about like coerced, like obliged gestures of love that ring hollow, right? How many of you would be flattered by that? Like, oh, that's so sweet. That's so romantic. No, you'd be like, what in the world? No, like what you want is to see actions and gestures and works of love flowing out of a place of genuine love for you, right? Like who wouldn't melt over that, right? (laughs) Like if you're like, It's just that, you know, like my life has never been the same. 
you know, ever since I met you, like, I, I wish I could do more. Like, you're like, oh, my gosh, like, take everything, right? Like, that would <laughs> that'd be so awesome. That is what true love is, right? When there's a choice and that is done out of genuine love. It's not coerced. It is not according to a schedule, not, as, not because somebody told them to do it, but it's simply because of love. Simply because of love. No agenda, no ulterior motive, nothing to prove, simply because they love you. And that is, I, w- I wonder if that is how God sees our many good works. You know, like, it would be such a shame if you spend your entire life looking like a Christian, acting like a Christian, sounding like a Christian, singing songs like a Christian, preaching messages like a Christian, praying for people like a Christian, but all of it devoid of love. It would be such a shame. You know, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, it says it this way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels and have not love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames but have not love, I gain nothing. Let me translate this to you for today. If I do every QT every single day, and I pray for every person that asks me for prayer, and I attend every service every Sunday and go to all these extracurricular Christian activities like prayer meetings or whatever. Um, I do all these things, but I have not love. I gain nothing. I am nothing. It is nothing but a clanging symbol. Wouldn't it be a shame to live that kind of life? Wouldn't it be a shame if all these things that you do are simply out of an agenda of wanting to get, gain the acceptance that Christ already has gained for you. Even if you wanted to gain the acceptance, you wouldn't be able to. No amount of good works will ever gain you what Christ alone was able to accomplish on the cross. And so understanding, understanding the gospel and understanding the fruit of the gospel, it opens up a beautiful opportunity for us as believers. There is, there is an image that has always haunted me when I've been reading through the Gospels. And it is from John 12. It talks about Mary, Mary of Bethany. And this is such a haunting picture. Because we know this woman not as someone who did all these incredible things for God and for the kingdom. We just simply see her displaying her love and her affection to Jesus in ways that were very unorthodox for that day. But it's like she could not contain that love that she had for Christ. Like she saw him sitting there and like everything in her was bursting at the seams, wanting to give him the worship that he deserved. There's something so compelling about the man who was sitting there in her presence that she took the most precious thing that she had, which was, which was her alabaster jar. In those times, that's her inheritance. That's her safety. That is her guarantee that whether she gets married or not, whether she gets uh, taken into a family or not, she'll be able to make it out okay. She, her security, her inheritance, her riches 
the most dear possession that she had. She chose to break this at Jesus' feet. And this is not possible from a place of wanting to gain his acceptance. This, is, this kind of act of love is not possible when she feels like she has something to prove. It is this act of unashamed, unabashed worship. It's almost like she was overwhelmed with love and could not help but break that which was most precious to her before the God who was worthy of it. And so this is the picture. This is the picture that I would love my life to look like. A life that is spent at his feet, what is most precious to me, given over to Christ. Feeling so in awe and so in wonder, so in love with this God that has done so much for me that I can't help but give him the best that I have to give. This is the life that I want to live. I want every song that I sing. I want every message that I preach. I want everything that I do to be like that. Something precious poured out at the feet of Jesus. Now, a couple of years ago, we had a guest preacher come in through New Philly. I don't know if many of you guys were here for it. But he was preaching on this idea of voluntary love, what it looks like when you choose to give Jesus your best, when you choose to give him what is most precious to you. And he ended this message talking about the church of Ephesus, which is talked about in Revelation 2. And this is what Revelation 2 says about the church of Ephesus. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. Repent and do the things you did at first. What are those things that we do at first when we first encounter the love of Christ? Like, if you were to just picture that moment when you realize that Christ loves you because he loves you, not because you're useful, not because you have potential, simply he loves you because he chose to love you, and that's it. Do you remember the kind of worship that flowed out from that place? Like, people didn't have to tell you to sing or pray or read the word. Like, they didn't need to. It's like, I wish there were more hours in the day for me to do these things. It's flowing out from a place of knowing the power of the gospel, his saving grace over your life, and that overflowing into works of love and worship. Like, people can shut you up even if they tried to. Like, everything in you wanted to worship this God. Maybe those are the things that we did at first. And maybe those are the things that we need to go back to as well. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. Perhaps this is God's exhortation for us today as well. We can talk about 
the gospel. We can talk about the mechanics of it and show nice diagrams and all that. But if, if at the end of the day, if we don't land at this place, we have a fresh understanding of God's love for us and what our life should look like because of it, then we're just getting puffed up in our understanding. We can listen to all the sermon series we want, but if we don't land at this place of going back to our first love, then we have gained nothing. We have accomplished nothing. It is nothing but the sound of clanging cymbals. Now let me close with this. In the next few weeks, as an Alpha community, we're going to be making different announcements and different events. Um, we're going to be doing different things as a community in the next few weeks. And it's really exciting. I think many of us here are relatively new, including myself. I don't know a lot of you guys either. So I am I'm looking forward to that opportunity to be able to do life together, to study the word together, to have fellowship together and learn each other's stories. I'm really excited for that. But how sad would it be if it just becomes a clanging symbol, if it's just frenzied activity, if it's just mindless busyness? We have all these things, all these programs happening every week. How sad would it be if all of that was nothing but the sound of clanging cymbals? We're just doing the Christian thing. This is what churches do. They do programs. They do Bible studies. They do these fellowship events. How sad would it be if that's what it was? And at the same time, on the flip side of that, how life-giving, refreshing, how amazing would it be if all these things were able to flow from a place of genuine love for God? The way that we treat one another, the way that we love one another, we pray with one another, the way that we study his word, not because we have to, but simply because we want to. Like how amazing would it be to become that kind of community that does all these things firmly rooted in the gospel and bearing much fruit for his name from the place of love. So that is my invitation to you. To live a life, to do church and do community together all of it from the place of love, from love-fueled service, love-sustained identity, and love-inspired worship to the God who's worthy. Let's pray. Father, we're just so grateful for everything that you have done on our behalf. The weight that we could not bear, the yoke that was too heavy for us, the crushing debt that was upon our lives. You took it all on our behalf on the cross. And we, as people who have been redeemed and adopted into your family, are eternally grateful. We pray that our lives would be but a reflection of the kindness, the compassion that you have shown us. The mercy you have extended on our behalf. The grace that is renewed to us each and every day. 
May we worship with abandon the God who loved us with abandon as well. The God who loved us first before we had anything to prove, before we had anything to gain or merit. May our lives look like that of someone at the feet of Jesus pouring out their inheritance, pouring out the most valuable possession, maybe pleasing in your sight. Father, if there's any of us here in this room who may be in the midst of busyness or responsibility or routine or hurt, if there's any of us here who have grown hard-hearted towards you, who have lost that sense of awe and wonder, who have allowed ourselves to just get busy and do a lot, and yet never fully connect with you. If there's any of us here in this room, Father, we want to ask you to bring us back to that place of first love. Bring us back to that place of first love, Father. And may what you see in this community, in this family, be something that brings you great pleasure and great glory. We love you, God. We thank you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.